Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Colored Red. Uh, what I have for you this month is a series of murders that took place in Grand Junction in 1975, and that marked that year as one of the most gruesome in Colorado's recent history. Um, I'll also bring up some murders outside of Grand Junction that year and the year following that might be connected or might not be. So I hope this isn't too confusing because we're going to be bringing up a lot of players into the terrible year of 1975. By the end of 1975, the city of Grand Junction itself would see eight homicides, including three young children, in an area where even one homicide every few years wasn't common. 1975 saw the combined presence of two separate serial killers to the streets of Grand Junction, and they, combined with a local man, worked to make it one of the most bizarre years in recent memory for the local police. If we total up the victims from western Colorado and eastern Utah for this year, there would be 15 women and children killed. Two of the deaths would be determined to be murder-suicide. One was a drowning. At least two were victims of the serial killer Ted Bundy. Two were from a separate killer named uh, Jerry Nimnick, who we'll discuss. Four were committed by a Grand Junction man who is now in jail. And six of the murders are still unsolved. During this time, there were rumors that some of the murders were cult killings after a UFO cult led by a couple who called themselves the Two had stayed at Colorado National Monument around the time of some of the murders. Grand Junction sits just about 20 miles east of Utah on the western side of the Colorado Rockies. The town is located right along I-70 and was a frequent stopping area for travelers driving across the country as well as truckers. But in 1975, it was a much smaller city than it is today. Just 54,000 people lived in Grand Junction at that time, and the police department, despite being ill-prepared for the year that faced them, ended up doing a remarkable job on the murders that occurred that year. Police officer Doug Rushing, who was 25 at the time and an active part of the murder investigations, called I-70 a corridor for the nation and mentioned that you never know what the highway is going to bring into town. So to initiate one of the most dreadful years that Grand Junction has ever seen, on April 6, 1975, Ted Bundy bought gas at a gas station where police officer Doug Rushing's brother was employed. That same day, a girl who resembled Ted Bundy's victims disappeared while riding a bike. Almost all of Ted Bundy's victims were beautiful young women with long, dark hair that was parted down the middle. The girl who disappeared on her bike was named Denise Liverson, and her bike and shoes were later found. In a deathbed confession from Ted Bundy, he admitted to kidnapping, murdering, and dumping a girl into a river near Grand Junction, and officials believe he was referring to a Liverson, the girl who was riding her bike. The case has since been closed with Bundy being the assumed murderer, despite it not being officially confirmed. Bundy also killed a nurse named Karen Campbell in Snowmass, Colorado, after purchasing gas at a gas station in Aspen. Additionally, he killed a woman in Vail named Julie Cunningham after purchasing gas at a station in Dillon. Ted Bundy has long been a suspect in the murder of Melanie Cooley, who went by Susie. She was hitchhiking in Nederland, Colorado after leaving class at Nederland High School and was found May 2, 1975 in Coal Creek Canyon. She had been hit over the head repeatedly with a large rock. Bundy ended up being eliminated in that crime. However, Bundy is still suspected in the death of Shelley Robertson, who was killed in August of 1975, and her body was found in the Willie May Mine, one, east, one mile east of Berthet Falls, Colorado. 
Bundy streak of terror in Colorado is thought to likely not end here, and it's unknown exactly how many women he killed. He was electrocuted in 1989 uh, while still withholding secrets. In an unrelated incident on August 23rd, Patricia Botham and neighbor Linda Miracle and her two sons Chad and Troy were reported as missing. The Bothams and the Miracles lived on the same street in Grand Junction, and on the night of August 22nd, neighbors reported hearing yelling and shots coming from the homes, and one of the neighbors saw someone carrying a bundle or body from the Miracle residence. Kenneth Botham, Patricia's husband, testified that he had left the morning of August 22nd to do some photography, and that he spent the night at the Ure Polly's Motel, and several witnesses placed him in Ure at that time. He reported that he returned to Grand Junction on August 23rd, and he returned and found his wife missing, as well as neighbor Linda Miracle and her two sons. And at that time, the police speculated that they had left the homes together at some point. So on September 28th, the body of Linda Miracle was discovered in the Gunnison River, and then Patricia Botham's body was discovered in the same river on October 2nd. The following day, the bodies of the two boys were also found in the river. Each body was bound with wire and railroad iron. The coroner testified that the two women died of asphyxiation and the two boys were killed with a gunshot wound to the head each. Later, wire cutters and blood stains were found in Kenneth Botham's car and other circumstantial evidence led to the arrest of Ken on November 8, 1975. So there were some issues before trial about the possibility that the court had decided Ken's guilt before his trial date was set because a judge um, made some statements at the time while Ken wasn't even arrested that, um, they, that Ken was basically a person that they needed to choke a confession out of. And despite there being significant media coverage of the case in Mesa County Grand Junction at the time, they proceeded with the trial in Grand Junction. So at the trial, it was revealed that Ken told police that he knew the victim's bodies were tied up with wire and a wire cutter was found in his car. Information had not been released to anyone about what the bodies were tied up with. Um, He had also told police that there was wire in his shed, but none was in the shed when police searched it. A friend of Kenneth's told the police that Ken owned a 22 caliber revolver, but that the gun hadn't been turned over to police, and additionally, the neighbor who had seen the man carrying an object outside of the house in the early morning of August 22nd testified that the car that was parked outside the house at the time was similar to the one that Ken drove. Later, police found the 22 caliber revolver stashed in the crawl space of the Botham home, But the gun was actually never conclusively linked to the deaths of the two boys, and it wasn't admitted into evidence at the trial. At the trial, the physician of Patricia Botham testified that he had seen bruises on Patricia between 1970 and 1975, and that in their discussions at his office, he had advised Patricia to get out of her situation, a statement that Ken's lawyers later said was definitely hearsay. So at the trial, the neighbor testified that she heard a scream and looked out of her window to see Ken carrying Linda Miracle up towards his house. Ken had explained that he saw Linda collapse outside and he was trying to revive her. So what we can make of the sequence of events as presented at at the trial is that Patricia was killed first and at some point during the murder, she screamed and Linda heard the commotion and came out of her house. At this point, Ken emerged from his house and also attacked Linda. It becomes apparent that Linda's two children were witnesses and then became collateral damage in the fit of rage from Ken. Ken was found guilty on one count of first-degree murder in the death of his wife, Patricia Botham, and three counts of second-degree murder in the deaths of Linda, Chad, and Troy Miracle.
Um, he was sentenced to three terms of 20 to 30 years in the second degree murders and sentenced to death for the first degree murder. The issues about the lack of the change of judge and the issues with the location of the trial in Grand Junction ended up being upheld as legitimate issues and Ken's convictions ended up being reversed. And the case was remanded to Golden, Colorado with Judge Winston Wolvington presiding. At this trial, Ken was again convicted of the crimes and there are numerous issues with this case that have been brought up and some people believe that it's still a cold case. And because of all the information that I ended up digging up on this case and the rabbit hole that I ended up going to with this, I might end up doing an entire episode on this case. But to briefly put it, a lot of the evidence here was circumstantial. And I'm not entirely convinced of Ken's guilt myself because they could never really prove that the gun actually killed the boys or that the blood that was found in his car actually came from any of the victims. And he was placed in Ure um, that evening by um, a bunch of different witnesses there. So I'm not entirely convinced here. Um, again, no blood or fingerprints were called into court that really linked Kenneth to the murders. Various physical evidence like the gun have been called into question in terms of it being linked to the two boys. And Ken testified that the gun was under the house because it was stolen and it had been under there for some time and was not used in any crime. What this was stolen for or when, that's another question. There's debate over whether or not the cuts from the wire cutters match the wire used to tie the bodies. There's testimony that the pieces of railroad used to weigh down the bodies was readily found around the river and that the time of the death of the bodies was impossible to determine because they had been in the river for up to a month when they were discovered. Um, the time of death of the bodies is important because, like I said, Ken was supposedly at Ure that evening, as verified by people there, and he could have been there up until 11 or 11.30 and then stayed until the next morning, as he described. Um, if he left late on the 22nd, he'd be cutting it pretty close if the murders happened at 1.30. And it takes two hours to drive from Ure to Grand Junction. To further put it, the one eyewitness in the case, the old lady who was living next door, who supposedly, for whatever reason, looked out of her window at this time she heard this scream, was known to have significant sight problems, and she couldn't verify when she saw Ken walking with Linda Miracle supposedly in his arms when she looked outside of her window. So she had no idea what time it actually was. If you're interested in this case, uh, the Ken Botham case, there's a website up um, run by Thayer Botham, the son of Ken and Patricia at KenBotham.com. And Thayer asserts his father's innocence on this webpage. There's also a book called Colorado Cold Case, The Botham and Miracle Murders by Marty Talbot. And like I said, I might do a standalone episode about this if I can find that book and find more information. And so that might be coming up this year at some point. But that's not the end of this episode. As we know, the mayhem of 1975 does not end here. Um, there were at least two other killers roaming Graham Junction at the time in a separate incident three months after the disappearance of Denise Liverson, who was on her bike. Um, an unknown killer murdered Linda Benson, who was 24 years old, and her daughter Kelly Ketchum, who was five years old. Linda and Kelly's bodies were found by Steve Benson, Linda's husband, and Kelly's father. He worked as a pipe fitter, and he had just returned home after working in a separate town for several days. Authorities at the time said that Linda's body was at the foot of the bed and had been stabbed five times. 
Kelly's body was on the floor of a connecting bathroom, and she had been stabbed in the chest eight times. At the time, there was no indication that they had been raped. No arrests were made, and Commander Greg Ossenmacher and retired Officer Larry Bullard began re-examining the case in 2007. At the time of these murders in 1975, um, Grand Junction Police Department had collected hundreds of pieces of evidence and spoken to dozens of people that didn't lead to an arrest. But it would turn out that everything that they did back in 1975 would be instrumental in providing a foundation for a guilty verdict later. So in 2009, shortly after the case was reopened and detectives began looking through older case files, the killer ended up being identified as Jerry Nimnick and he was arrested. At the time of his arrest, he was 64 years old and living in Longmont. His bail was set to $3 million after District Attorney Pete Hotzinger told the court that Nimnick posed an escape risk because he had violated parole before and escaped from a Boulder work crew in the past. So Jerry Nimnick was born in Denver and was first arrested in 1960 in Nebraska when he was just 16. The following year, he was convicted of rape with a weapon and served time in a Colorado prison, but then was released. In 1968, he was imprisoned for assault with intent to rape, and again in 1974, Nimnick was arrested in Boulder for rape, rape using a weapon as well as kidnapping and assault. And of course, he was released yet again and then served a lengthier term in 1978 for first-degree assault and rape in Denver until his release again in 1992. So right away we see there's an extensive pattern of rape and assault, and it's unclear why he was released so many times, and especially why he was released at all after that first time, or any time before that for that matter. So this guy's been in jail a lot. At the time of his arrest, Nimnik was working as a long-haul trucker, and Grand Junction police were waiting for him, when he crossed the Utah-Colorado border at the port of entry station near Loma. It is known that the blood that blood was found at the crime scene of Linda Benson and her daughter, and possibly it was on a cereal box, but I couldn't confirm that detail. And the blood did not match either of the victims. So back in 1989, Colorado's prison system began collecting DNA from inmates convicted of sex crimes, and Commander Ossenmacher was able to use the DNA that was collected in 1975 and that was on the, that was in the blood that was on the cereal box and matched to the sample of Jerry Nimnick that was collected. It was noted that um, had the evidence not been collected so well back in 1975, they wouldn't have been able to solve this case. Detectives took a while to decide how to apprehend Nimnik because um, they had to be careful to not tip him off or miss important details. They ended up deciding to build a background on Nimnik by contacting people from his past that didn't speak with him at all um, at the time that he was arrested. And so Grand Junction Police Detective Sean Crocker and Colorado Bureau of Investigation agent Brooks Bennett then began a months-long journey across the country to speak with anyone who had had contact with Jerry Nimnick. They discovered he had bounced two checks in Grand Junction just days before the crime and briefly lived near the crime scene. In 2009, detectives then worked with Nimnick's employer to route him through the Loma point of entry and took him into custody there. He didn't say a word as he was apprehended. The investigation continued even after he was in custody and more samples were analyzed as well as more witnesses questioned. With this information, they were able to solve two unsolved rape cases from 1960 and 1968. And eventually the women were located from those rape cases and they found the courage to testify in court against Nimnik. 
in court, Nimnik, who until this point had been completely silent and had not even spoken with detectives, surprised everyone by deciding to take the stand. Nimnik spun a tale proclaiming his innocence by saying he stumbled upon the bodies of Linda and her daughter after being attacked by a person wielding a knife. How then, District Attorney Pete Hotzinger said, did his blood get under Linda's nails? And if he entered the apartment and found the bodies and left through the door, why was the door locked from the inside? The case was closed on that note, and the jury deliberated for two nail-biting days. The verdict was guilty in the end, and Nimnik was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. So you might remember I said that at the time of his arrest, Nimnik was a long-haul trucker. So the same year he was apprehended in 2009, the FBI launched the Highway Serial Killings Initiative, which is an initiative designed to raise awareness amongst law enforcement agencies and the general public about the bodies of female women found along the highways of the United States. The suspects of these crimes are predominantly long-haul truck drivers, um, and the crimes usually go unsolved due to the mobility of the crimes happening in multiple jurisdictions, um, the lack of witnesses, the lack of forensic evidence, etc., some truckers have been caught and convicted of a single crime, while it is well known that the extent of their crimes and murders will likely never be known, as is the case with Jerry Nimnick. Given Nimnick's extensive history with rape and assault, I'm willing to bet um, there are a number of murders in other states committed by him that will likely never be linked to him. But this isn't the entire story with Jerry. Jerry um, is also suspected in several more murders along the Front Range, he became a person of interest in the murder of June Koaloff, a 20-year-old um, mathematics major at the University of Denver. June was from Manhattan, and she had been in a nearly fatal car accident not long before the incident and was still recovering. June was fatally stabbed outside of her apartment in 1973. An apartment manager heard June scream at 5 a.m. on the Saturday that she was killed. The manager then found June face up in a pool of blood wearing only a blue-green bathrobe and she was at the bottom of the concrete steps leading down to her apartment. She had been stabbed four times. At the time, her parents reported that she had been unhappy living alone in the apartment and she had only been there for about two weeks. She was planning on moving in with roommates that weekend. Um, she died at the base of the stairs leading to the apartment that she was about to leave and the killer ended up leaving semen on her. At the time of this podcast, no killer identification has been revealed by the semen, though it has been tested or is in the process of being tested against Jerry Nimnick, and the case has been reopened. A year before um, June was killed, Nimnick was serving one of his sentences in the Colorado State Penitentiary at Canyon City, and he actually wrote a guest editorial for the Denver Post expressing his concerns over prison reform. He's quoted here saying, quote, destruction will continue as long as prisoners are caged, herded about like cattle under the watchful eyes of armed guards and segregated from their families, friends and society in general. He went on to warn about the mistreatment of inmates by saying, quote, pacifying them with reform only further aggravates their sense of impotence, frustration and rage. It merely intensifies their condition and feeds the fires of rebellion. So basically we have a guy who's attempting to place blame on anything else other than himself. And by the looks of his arrest record, he absolutely could not wait to get back into prison and get cozy with his buddies there. So in other words, Jerry just couldn't handle life outside of prison and he took out the rage he felt about his own inadequacies on innocent women and children. 
I hesitate to call him a serial killer because his involvement in other murders is speculation at this point. So other than this podcast, you'll probably never hear of this idiot again. And I'll leave you with the knowledge that Jerry Nimnick is still serving a life sentence at Colorado State Penitentiary, where it appears he wanted to be and where he's in an environment that is more his speed. But that's not the end of the story of 1975 either. The final death of the Grand Junction killing season occurred at the very end of 1975 and is the last case remaining open. On December 27, 1975, one more murder occurred. The partially clothed body of Deborah Kathleen Tomlinson was found in the bathroom of an apartment at 1029 Belford Avenue. She was discovered after a neighbor had seen an open window screen going into her apartment and the apartment manager entered the apartment after not getting an answer. She lived alone and attended school at Mesa College. Her hands were tied behind her back, and evidence indicated that she had also been sexually assaulted. She had a gash across her head, indicating she had struggled with her attacker. There were no signs of struggle inside the apartment itself, and she had spoken with her parents only about three to four hours before her body was found. Doug Rushing, the police officer that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, helped investigate the case and kept coming to dead ends after following tips from friends and acquaintances that led them to interview pretty much anyone and everyone in Grand Junction at the time, including postal carriers, trash collectors, carpet cleaners, and neighbors. Doug Rushing quit the police department later on, and the case struggled for decades with only the occasional lead. Ted Bundy was in jail at the time of Deborah Tomlinson's murder, and there are currently no suspects in the Tomlinson case. Her case is the only one from the Grand Junction killing season that remains a mystery. And just to wrap up this episode, uh, here's a particularly gruesome murder that happened the following year in Pueblo, Colorado. I mention it only because I was reading about this case and I noted its proximity in time to the other murders. I noted that it was fairly unique for Pueblo at that time, making it seem like it could have been associated with the other unique killings in Grand Junction at the time and all the psychos running around there. So on August 16, 1976, a fisherman discovered a plastic trash bag that contained handless arms, legs, and breasts from a female body that were combined in the bag with parts of a golf club and bricks. Several hours later, the torso, head, and hands were found by a woman about 20 miles away. A woman named Mrs. Don Bowman helped identify the deceased woman as her daughter, Sharon Marie Kopp, who had been reported missing. Sharon's car had been found with a dead battery near a tavern the day prior to the body being discovered, and another man had turned in a purse that he found on the side of the road into the police department, and it contained a welfare card with Sharon Kopp's name on it. In the autopsy of Sharon, they indicated that she had been killed several days prior. Her nose was broken and her eyes blackened. She had been stabbed several times. Curiously, the body parts in one of the bags were not very decomposed and were clean, while the others in the other bag were much more decomposed, which was odd considering they were found hours from each other. However, one was in the water, which could have slowed the decomp. Sharon was the mother of three young children. She was born in Canyon City, Colorado, and ended up studying cosmetology in Denver. She was 34 years old at the time of her death, petite and blonde, and was described by her sister Leanna as being feisty with a good sense of humor. 
Her first husband, Bill Sullivan, was the father of her three young children, and at the time of her murder, she was seeking a divorce from her second husband, Donald Kopp, who was serving a 60-day sentence for driving complaints at the time of her murder, so he wasn't involved. There was very little evidence associated with the murder. Aside from the golf club and bricks, there was also a boy's medium-sized tank top inside the bags. Later on in the case, Sharon's panties, bra, and other personal items were discovered near the Memorial Garden Cemetery, close to where her purse was found. A pair of blood-stained rubber gloves were found near Pueblo's sewage treatment plant, and those were sent to Colorado Bureau of Investigation in an attempt to match the blood to Sharon, and I couldn't find anything else on whether or not it, that was Sharon's blood. At the time, they didn't have DNA testing, so I'm not exactly sure. They might have just blood typed it, but they could have done that um, probably at any lab, so I'm not sure what they were attempting to do at that time. Several suspects were interviewed and cleared. The boy's tank top was the most significant clue in this case, and there was a cartoon soccer player on the tank top, and it was traced to a local Kmart that sold the same shirt. And it was discovered that only one medium had been sold from that Kmart store, but who purchased it was unknown. Later, a composite sketch of a suspect was revealed that was based on eyewitness testimony from two fishermen who said they saw a tall, thin man with red blonde hair who was sitting in his car near the river where one of the bags was found and he was drinking a beer. They indicated that the trunk of his car was open and he was wearing white dress pants and a brown shirt. At the time, many people noticed the similarity between the murder of Sharon and the murders of Edmund Kemper, who had surrendered only three years earlier from a payphone in Pueblo, Colorado. They briefly considered that Ed Kemper might have escaped the California mental institution where he was being kept at the time, but that turned out to not be the case, of course. A Pueblo chieftain news reporter asked for the help of several specialists in the field of psychology to come up with a profile of a potential killer. And here's an excerpt from the profile that they developed. It's a man between the ages of 20 and 40. He's very strong and obviously capable of great rage, but also capable of great cool. The focus of his anger was centered on the sexual organs of his victim, and there is a strong possibility that he will strike again. A psychology professor from the University of Southern Colorado indicated that he believed the crimes were sexual in nature, and unfortunately, despite the profiles that were developed of the killer, no similar murder has ever occurred in or around Pueblo, Colorado, and the case is still unsolved. The case can still be found online um, at the Colorado Bureau of Investigation Cold Case Files uh, database, and the Pueblo Police Department is still taking any information that they can get on this case. So the possibility of Sharon's killer being Ted Bundy definitely comes to mind. There are a few things that fit Ted Bundy's M.O. And, and quite a few more that don't. Sharon, first of all, didn't match the appearance of Ted Bundy's victims, though he did have one victim that was slightly similar. Um, additionally, Bundy drove a bright yellow VW Bug. And I personally don't think it's possible that the fisherman saw a man drinking a beer in his car and could identify the man's clothes and see him um, drinking a beer inside the car, but they couldn't remember that the car was a yellow VW Bug, which is a pretty distinct car. Bundy didn't really dismember his victims, but he was known to remove their heads on a couple of occasions as trophies. He would also go back to the location of the dump and either have sex with the deceased victim, 
shampoo their hair, dress them in new clothes, and occasionally do their nails. So this case doesn't really fit in with any of those details that we know of, but I don't think it's completely out of the realm of possibility considering Bundy was around Utah and Colorado and around the area between 1975 and 1976 as we know. And that actually wraps up the terrible 1975 year in Colorado and the subsequent year. Um, it was a very rough year for Grand Junction in particular. I hope the stories weren't too much of a mess or too confusing. I kept going down rabbit holes with this one, and I appreciate you guys for sticking it out. Next month, we'll have um, a sensational 1930 murder of a young girl, as well as a more recent high-profile murder centered around an Aspen socialite. Um, I've noticed that we've gotten a few more likes on Facebook, so I appreciate that. Thank you, everybody, for liking Please go on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and rate it as well. I'm also on Stitcher, and I should be on a few other different apps um, for listening to podcasts. But if I'm not on the app that you use, please let me know, and I'll find a way to submit uh, my my feed there. So um, please also share the podcast with your friends. I know a lot of people are really into true crime these days, and... I'm going to start getting some more promotions out there for this, um, particularly on Reddit and on Facebook and everywhere else. So I could really use your guys' help in promoting this podcast if you enjoy it. So thanks, everybody. Additionally, I'd like to thank a few references in this case, the Denver Post, as always, the Websless Community, um, Unresolved Mysteries page on Reddit, the book uh, Mountain Murders, Homicide in the Rockies by Betty Alt and Sandra K. Wells. And that'll be about it. Thanks, guys. Um, And I will be back with you in a couple weeks with a brand new story. Thank you.